Well, it is good to be here. My name is Matt Ritchie. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, overseeing Next Gen primarily, but I get to teach with you today. And uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, we're talking about fruit of the Spirit, and our key verse for the whole series is found in Galatians 5 23, where the list of the fruit of the Spirit is found. But I also am going to tell you right up front that there's going to be a lot of scripture, and I'm probably not going to give you time to get to it. So as you hear a scripture, write it down. And then somebody told me in first service, they said, we'll just um, watch it again and write it down uh, as we go through it a second time. That was. Okay, they're gonna go through it twice because it was so rich and meaningful to them. So, okay, I'm being a little bit selfish there or prideful and I don't mean to come across that way, but um, we are talking about the fruit of the spirit and, it's, and we're talking about spiritual agriculture. And last week, Pastor Keith, uh, we, we've introduced uh, the series two weeks ago. Then last week he talked about the fruit of love and how it's hard to define. You, you know it when you see it, it's described, but it's, it's kind of hard to define. And so when you see it in action, you recognize it. And when it comes to all the fruits of the spirit, and we're talking about joy today, by the way, but when we're talking about all the fruits of the spirit, um, it's impossible for me to think about this without the context of John 15. And you don't have to turn there, but if you're familiar with this passage, this is the passage where Jesus makes this statement. He said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you don't have to be uh, a genius in the area of agriculture or have a bio, uh, biology degree or anything to understand that a branch severed from the vine or severed from the tree is dead. It cannot produce fruit. And so the obvious application for us is that without being connected to Christ, nothing will amount, nothing, there will be no fruit in our lives. And so uh, the obvious uh, part of this as well is that we should be a living branch. I don't know if, if you've ever, um, maybe you don't have trees, but my wife will sometimes ask me to trim the trees, right? Does any, any husbands have to do that job? You never go out and grab a branch and just try to yank it off, okay? Now, if it's dead, that's one thing, but a living branch, you never try to just pull it off with your own strength. Even a small branch on a small sapling is really hard to remove just with your physical, with your hands. You have to have a tool. You have to have something designed to sever. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are permanent, we are, we are intentionally, we are grafted in. In fact, that's the word Paul uses in Romans 11. He says, you are grafted in. He said, and, and remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And he's talking about this in the context of the Gentiles and the Israelites. And, and some of the people were like, well, is the gospel for the Gentiles? And he's like, absolutely. They are grafted in. We are grafted in. Christ chose us and we are connected to him. But how arrogant would it be for us to say, I'm bearing the fruit as the branch because it's not the branch that supports the root. It's the reverse, Christ he is the root. He is the one that bears fruit within us. And so when I 
say what I'm gonna say the rest of this morning and as we go through the rest of the series, just remember, it's nothing, the fruit is not manufactured by us. We do not create our own spiritual fruit. It is a result of the work of what Christ has done in us. And so therefore there is no boasting. It's not like, hey, look at the love I have for people or look at the peace I have or the joy I have. It's what Christ has done in us. And so how do we bear much fruit? We simply remain, we abide, we stay connected to him. But for this morning, as we move into talking about joy, um, we're gonna talk about what it looks like. And so I'm gonna uh, turn your attention to Isaiah chapter nine, and I'm gonna read a couple of verses here, two and three, and then I'm gonna skip down uh, later in the chapter. And it says this in verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shined or dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And when I read this, uh, the obvious question is, okay, what's the reason for their joy? What is it pointing to? And then we skip down to verse nine and here's kind of our Christmas verse, Christmas in July. Can you believe it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And, and the writer here, Isaiah was saying, this is why your joy is come. This is why, this is your reason for joy because of Christ. And so today I'm simply entitled this message, Christ-centered joy. And there's a difference between the Christ-centered joy that we're gonna talk about today and happiness. If I could make a distinction, happiness is simply tied to the circumstances, achievements, the state of our relationships, our comfort, our pleasure, anything that's temporary, that's what happiness is tied to. But Christ-centered joy is something that goes beyond those things. Let me put it to you like this. When those things, which are not all bad, by the way, it's, it's okay to, to wanna achieve some things. It's okay to want to have healthy relationships. It's okay to have some comforts. It's okay to have some pleasure. But we have to understand that those things may bring us happiness, but when those things are threatened or damaged, our happiness will dissipate. And so what Christ calls us to is joy. What Christ wants to do in us is to restore joy, to create joy in our life that goes beyond some fleeting moments, beyond a good weekend, beyond a vacation, beyond some temporary comforts. He wants to do something greater than that. And by the way, once we have the joy of Christ, once it's being experienced in our hearts and lives, it can result in happiness, there can be some joyful, happy moments, but we cannot, I don't want us to get out of balance where we're focused on something temporary when God has something for us greater. Now, um, I made this comment earlier. I'm gonna say Christ-centered joy so much that you're gonna be annoyed by it, okay? Because I'm, I want to make sure that I make that distinction. And, and if history is any guide, somebody here is gonna count how many times I say it and then tell me after the service. That's already happened once, by the way. Um, so I, I hope that it doesn't grate on your nerves, but I want to make sure that we are clearly thinking differently. Happiness is not bad, but it's temporary. Christ-centered joy is something greater. And we're gonna talk about what that looks like. So here we go. I believe that there are about four things and there's probably, this is not a, an exhaustive list 
list because I'm sure somebody could do a better job than me in describing what this looks like. But I see four things, at least four things in scripture that help us discern and recognize what Christ-centered joy looks like. First of all, I believe Christ-centered joy is inside and out. In other words, it's, it's visible, but it's not just on the surface. It, and, and it is possible to fake a smile, to fake happiness in a moment. And we all do this. You know, you're kind, of, you're kind of going through your day and it's maybe not a good day. And somebody goes, hey, how you doing? You're like, great. Good, fine. Anybody do that? Because we know that that person really doesn't want to know about how our day is really going. It's just a greeting and passing. And by the way, once in a while, somebody will start to tell you about how they're really doing. You're like, that's not what I meant. I was just saying, hi, like, <laughs> can we make an appointment? <laughs> and so, no, but like, we've all done this. We've all had a bad day and we've all grinned and, and, and kind of bared it. Now imagine with me if you can, maybe this doesn't relate to you, but imagine with me if you can this situation. There's a family getting ready for church on Sunday morning. Let's just call them the Richies for example's sake. The kids either get up really, really early before mom and dad even think about getting up and they're into breakfast food or toys and they make a mess. Or maybe they're teenagers and they sleep and no matter, and they sleep in and no matter what you do, you could blow an air horn and they're not gonna move, okay? Maybe you have a combination of the two. Then there's getting ready, hair needs combed, teeth needs brushed, clothes need chosen. And there is the inevitable item that comes up missing. It's the belt, the sunglasses, the wallet, the car keys. And there is a frantic recovery effort. In the midst of it all, the breakfast is being prepared. It's being eaten, cleaned up, and time seems to be flying by at two times the normal speed. Finally, there is the mad dash to the car or the minivan with threats of someone being left behind. A child or a teen... A child or a teen complains about not having enough time to get ready or enough food in their stomach. And then there is the inevitable fight over the seating arrangement in the car or the van or something similar. And there are more threats of somebody being left behind. Then the parents begin to disagree about the threat and the tone of the threat. Depending on the age of the children, they may chime in as well, dumping on the parent who had the bad tone and the bad threat. Traffic congestion doesn't help. It's Sunday and no one is in a hurry. The drive is now morphed into the Daytona 500. Drafting behind other cars, passing on curves are now acceptable forms of navigation because well, your ministry leader has texted you three times and asked if you are still coming. <laughs> the traffic lights and signs are mere suggestions as are the parking team's instructions as your minivan careens into the parking lot. The family piles out of the car, races to the nearest entrance. And in that instant, all of the frustration of the morning is transformed with a simple greeting uh, greeter, uh, from, the, from the greeter. You have the joy of the Lord instantly. And there's a smile and there's a complete surface level cover up of all the moments that just transpired. <laughs> Do you relate to that at all? Okay. And by the way, let me remind you that, that putting on that smile that doesn't accurately reflect what just happened, that's not a wrong thing, it's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that's not what joy, Christ-centered joy demands of us. That's not what it looks like. In fact, in Psalms uh, 19.8, it says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. 
The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And so when I read this, it's obvious that Christ-centered joy begins from within and then it moves to the outward. It's not manufactured on the surface to move inward. It's the reverse order. And, and by the way, that morning can happen and will happen. And it probably happens on school days and everything else. And sometimes we have to do the best we can, but let's define Christ-centered joy. It's what starts within, it's in our heart, and then it moves to the outward. It's not something we manufacture or fake or just put, it's not a mask we wear. It's something that is real. So firstly, I believe Christ-centered joy is both inside and out. It's not just surface. Secondly, Christ-centered joy, it goes beyond our circumstances. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Um, I'm gonna read a few verses here, starting in verse one. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here's the key part of this passage. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is how, this is why it's possible for someone to be diagnosed with cancer or to walk through a financial uh, desert or stress, to have a bad day, it's, it's the reason why a church and the church can walk through a pandemic. And it's a reason why individuals can experience rejection from people and friends and still have joy. It's because the Christ-centered joy that he gives to us, that he creates in us, it transcends, it goes beyond our circumstances. And this is one of the best ways that and I'm gonna talk about this a little bit at the end too, but it's one of the best ways that people can recognize Christ in you because your response to your circumstances will be different. They will not be normal. And you're gonna be at work and you're gonna be in a conversation or what have you. And they're gonna be like, what is different? What is going on? How are you? There's something different. Is that even possible? And you're not gonna have to have a whole doctrinal theological answer for them, you're just gonna be able to communicate, hey, this is what Christ has done for me. He has done something in me. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't seem normal. It's not even logical, but yes, I'm able to have joy in this moment. I remember as a little kid, this just came to me. I remember as a little kid, um, my parents took me to a Southern gospel concert um, to hear the cathedrals. I don't know if you guys know who the cathedrals are. And I believe the pianist's name was Roger Bennett at the time. And he had been diagnosed with cancer and he was talking about how he was struggling with that diagnosis and the devastating news that it meant for him and his wife and his kids. And he actually said that, yes, it was devastating in that, that season, but then he actually came to a place where he thanked God for cancer because of the influence and the blessing that he was able to communicate about Christ to others in that season because people started to come up to him and say, how are you, live, how are you dealing with this? How, how can you still have joy? How can you still have peace? And he was like, it's because what Christ has done in me. 
That doesn't make sense to the average person to rejoice in suffering, but that's the kind of result that Christ-centered joy has on our lives. The other thing that Paul mentions in this passage is it says, he says, we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. I don't know if you've um, ever looked forward to something, but my wife and I, we recently took our kids on a, a family vacation. And how many of you use the map app? Anybody? GPS, okay, so um, we were driving to our destination and I, because of the price of gas, I had mapped out a specific route to hit the cheaper gas stations, all the Costco's, okay? So like, (laughs) so, um, and we had stayed at a hotel and we got up the next morning, got breakfast and we were kind of run behind, you know how it is. And, uh, because I described to you how it it was. And, uh, got gas and we got on the road and I had punched in the address to our next, uh, our next hotel. And it took me, there was two routes. It took me the wrong way. The, the kind of the mountain roadway with no Costco's. And uh, I, get, I get going and I'm just following. I don't, you know, I've never really been there before and I'm just following the directions. And I realize I'm like, this looks different from what I was expecting. And I look and I pull over and I realize I'm going the wrong way. It had taken me a shorter way, but it was not the way I intended to go. I was very frustrated. I wanted to be like, cancel the vacation, we're going home. Like, <laughs> I'm not paying $7.89 for gas, okay? But, and the, the funny thing that worked out is we didn't even need to buy gas on that route. And it was actually less traffic and more scenic. It was actually a pretty cool drive. But in that moment, I was frustrated. But you know what helped me move beyond my frustration was looking ahead to what was to come. Looking ahead to the vacation, looking ahead to spending time with my family. And there are times when we go through a valley, we go through difficult times, we go through sufferings, but Paul reminds us, hey, don't get your focus here. Look to the hope, look to what Christ has promised to you. And oftentimes that can reorient our hearts back to the joy that Christ wants to have or put in us. Thirdly, I believe that Christ-centered joy, it blesses me, it blesses us, and it enriches others. Psalm 16:11. By the way, this whole chapter, Psalm 16, is a great one to study this week because it says so much about this idea of joy, what Christ-centered joy looks like. But the single verse in 11 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Serving Christ, serving God, there's a lot of fun in that. Living in relationship with Christ, there's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of pleasure in that. And that's okay. And and I don't know how you were raised or what what your background was, but when I began to understand more and more about Christ and what he was all about, I began to notice that there were people who claimed to be Christian and had like zero joy. They were kind of like that line from Remember the Titans, like zero fun, sir, like no fun, no smiling, no fun. Following Christ is all about just work, you know, just grin and bear it. It's about just fighting the good fight and there, this, is, this is not gonna be cool. Just buckle up, here we go. And as a young person, I was like, that sounds terrible. Like that's, that's not what I, and you know what? Then I saw other people who had a completely different outlook. Their, their relationship with Christ was filled with joy. Yes, there was painful times. Yes, there was moments of sacrifice and there was, there was times where they did fight, they did battle. 
but there was an underlying joy and there was an attractiveness about their relationship with Christ. And those are the kinds of people when I watched how they lived, I was like, if that's what Christianity, that's the kind of Christianity that I want. And I can't help but look in scripture, Christ, God himself had a plan for his, peer, for his people to experience joy. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's, he, he, he institutes the Sabbath. And we're familiar with this. Even today, we're, we're observing Sunday, a Sabbath, where we set, a time, or set aside a day of the week to relax, we, to, to rest, to rejuvenate, to spend time with loved ones, to have a meal, to, to experience a worship service, to, to, to get in community with people that are life-giving to us. Sabbath was created for you and I by God. He wanted us to celebrate. He wanted us to experience rest, to experience joy. In fact, he went so far as to institute, they instituted what they called the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. Have you heard of this? Okay, so like every 50 years, the whole nation of Israel would be like, yep, not working anymore. Just 12 months, totally off, no work. How many of you just love a year off work? <laughs> just do what you want, spend time with your family. It's like a year long vacation. Now it was only once every 50 years. So it's not like craziness, but... They did that because it not only gave the land an opportunity to rest from the harvest, but God would prepare them for that year off. And the intent was to simply be with their loved ones, their families, and to, in fact, they would free people that, from debts that were owed to them. Um, in this time, uh, slavery, the, slaves were set free and everything was reset. So if you owed a debt to somebody, it was forgiven because the point was Christ wanted to give his people rest, jubilee, joy. And then of course he said, I want you to do this. I want you to have a reset every single week. God is a God of joy. And by the way, every research that, every, every kind of research you can find on rhythm or routine, the human body is not designed to go seven days a week, 24 seven. It's, it's, it's unhealthy. And Christ knew this and he said, hey, my people, I want you to stop. I want, to, want you to rest. I want you to get your eyes on me. I want you to spend time with people that you love because I want you to experience joy. I want you to experience this. And so we need to be intentional about it. God has put a plan in place, but let's be intentional about it. And, and it's good for us. It's, it's fun for us. And by the way, this will allow us to enrich others, to bless others. When we are rejuvenated, we're able to give life into other people. We're able to speak life into other people's lives. Fourthly, I believe Christ-centered joy endures. Christ-centered joy endures. There's a short verse in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, that simply says this, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When I read this, my mind runs to, the joy of the Lord gives me motivation to get up and take my next step, to, to get up and to do the next hard thing, the next right thing. It's a motivator and it enables me to endure. 
Now, just to give you some context of this verse, um, Nehemiah, um, this is after the, the capture and destruction of the nation of Israel. They, the people have been uh, put into exile, put into slavery, um, and first with the Babylonians and, and then with the Persians. And Nehemiah is an attendant to the king Artaxerxes. And because of the exile, because Israel has been conquered by these empires, the, over time, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem, the walls and the temple of Jerusalem have been torn down and destroyed. And Nehemiah hears the news that his home city has been just leveled and it's, it's literally burning. And this not only um, is hard for him to hear because it's his hometown, it's because Jerusalem is the national symbol of, of it's, it's, it's a point of pride. It's a symbol of pride for the people of Israel. And it's also a symbol of God's provision and blessing to the people. And it's been torn down. It's been run over. And so as you can imagine, Nehemiah has a deep desire to, to go back and to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to restore the honor, not only of the people, but to restore the city to God. And so he asked Artaxerxes, can I go and be a part of the, the reconstruction process? And not only is he given permission, but he's given resources and they go. And with Ezra, they go back and they begin the process of rebuilding the walls. And upon his arrival, it's not easy. It's hard. There's a host of problems. The people that are there with him to rebuild the wall, they're, they're fearful. They don't have a lot of belief that it can be done. It looks like an impossible job. Plus the surrounding peoples, it's kind of like martial law, no real uh, control or security. And so they're getting attacked while they're trying to rebuild the walls. It's one thing to try to rebuild something. It's another thing, thing to have, you know, be looking over your shoulder, fearful of attack. So they're dealing with that. And then his leadership is actually undermined. They try to throw him out of leadership. But in spite of all that, he does experience success. And when we get to chapter eight, one of the things that Nehemiah decides to do is that he says to, to Ezra, he said, we need to, we need to have a church service. We need to read the law of God to the people. And so Ezra and him, they, they, they planned it. They actually built, uh, they built a, a podium of some kind for that purpose. It actually says that. And then Ezra reads the law and it says that he gave it sense. In other words, he helped the people understand the law of the Lord. It'd probably been a while since they'd heard it. And so they, they, they gave this message to help the people understand what God wanted for them. And when they hear it, they're dejected because they realize their sin. They realize all of their flaws. They realize all of the mistakes. They realize that there's this chasm between where they are now and where God wants them to be. And there's no joy. And then Nehemiah and Ezra both, they say, hey, lift up your heads. It sounds like bad news. And this might be my key verse, my life verse. He says this, go home and eat the fat and drink the sweet. And obviously like I'm taking that a little bit out of context, but what he's saying is go home and celebrate, go home and have a meal, go home and be with the people you love, go home. And actually he says, if somebody's unprepared to have this meal, give to those who are in need, share the food that you have with each other because I want you to have joy. And then he says this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The next chapter, the people confess their sin to the Lord. They bring their sin to the Lord and they are purified, they're forgiven. 
one of the things that stands out to me from this is that when I experience the joy of the Lord, it, 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 it motivates me to embrace the Lordship of Christ in my life. There's so many things in my life that I may wanna hold on to and hold on to tightly, but what Christ wants to do in me is greater than anything that I could ever obtain or manufacture in my own strength. And so when the joy of the Lord is present in me, it motivates me to go to him and say, God, I need you. I, I need your strength. I want your strength and I want your Lordship. And so the joy of the Lord, it endures. And by the way, this is one of the, these four things probably overlap and kind of connect to one another. But this is the easiest one for me to kind of measure whether I have happiness that I've manufactured or, or if I have Christ-centered joy. Because Christ-centered joy will endure, it will last. And again, I wanna remind you, it's not that we don't have the, it's not that we can't have a bad day as a Christian. It's not that we can't have a frustrating moment or a time of anxiety or stress, but where our hearts will return to the foundation of joy. Now I'd be remiss in these final minutes if I didn't uh, warn you that there are some things that can steal our joy. And I'm just gonna give you four more things quickly that I believe can erode our joy or undermine our joy. And I'll be honest, these are things that I wrote down out of my own experience. And so if you disagree, just strike it. That's okay, I won't be offended. But I believe that these, uh, these four things, if they're true for me, they're probably true for you. And the first thing that can destroy our joy or threaten our joy is simply sin. Rebellion, rejection of the truth of God, when we reject the Lordship of Christ, when we reject his authority in our life, we are risking the destruction of our joy. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, continual habitual sin and living in darkness will never result in joy. It will always lead to destruction. However, Christ being rich in mercy has provided a way for us to be restored. And, and I, my mind runs to that passage, I believe it's in Psalm 51, where David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. If you, have, if you have sinned, and we all have, and if you have experienced forgiveness, and I hope you have, you have experienced a flood of joy, a, re a restoration of joy in your heart and soul. But when there's sin present, when there's, when there's known sin, when there's uncon unconfessed sin, when there's unrepented sin present in our lives, it, it, it cannot result in joy. And so we must reject sin. We must accept the restoration work of Christ in our life and turn away from what he says is unclean. The second thing that I see is that apathy, apathy can be a destroyer of our Christ-centered joy. If we live a lukewarm life and we're unengaged with the people and circumstance around you and the attitude is simply like, yeah, I don't care. What do you wanna do? I don't know. You know, it, if we're just an apathetic person, and I think I said this the last time I preached, we are not participating in the restoring work that Christ wants to do in us. Now I'm not talking about salvation necessarily. Christ saves us. He restores us. He does the work. He bears the fruit. But there is a clear scriptural principle that we are also called to follow Christ. We are called to obey Christ. In fact, Christ used some, some pretty strong language. He says this, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And it's not because he's a manipulator or a dictator. It's because he is our commander who knows the best way to navigate our lives. 
and he knows the way through. He knows the way out. And he's saying, if you love me, if you trust me, you will obey my commands. And so he gives us steps. He, that's the way we say it here at Grace. Everyone has a next step. And so we are called to obedience. We are called to a next step and we are called to participate in what Christ wants to do in us. But if we're apathetic, if we're lazy, we don't care, it's not going to happen. And that can be a threat of joy, a destroyer of joy. Thirdly, if we, and this is closely related, is we live a self-centered life. And obviously it's not a Christ-centered life. A self-centered life is a mindset that just says, king me first, I'm living for the next good day for me. I'm living for the next moment of pleasure for me. And naturally this leads to isolation. Anybody love being around a self-centered person? Anybody just love that? You know what self-centered people do? As they take advantage of everyone around them, it, depending on their success or achievements, they may have some, some followers, some friends, but they're, they're, they're alone. And no matter how many people may be around them, they're living in isolation. Self-centeredness always leads to a place where you are alone. And that's, the, that's simply what we were not designed to experience. We were designed for community. We were designed for relationship first with Christ and then with a community of people around us and self-centeredness will just cut off and sever those relationships and it will destroy our joy. By the way, I think this is one reason why billionaires and, and famous people and people of influence and everybody knows who they are and they have all the money and they have all the su success, but they look around at the pinnacle and they go, is this it? Is this all there is? And so they either you know, push themselves to achieve something even greater or they dive into philanthropy of some kind, which is not bad. I'm not criticizing that whatsoever, but I believe it speaks to this need to say, hey, I've lived for myself and I've gotten to the pinnacle and it's not enough. And actually I see the, the exact opposite in people who are generous. I see the exact opposite in people who are living um, not for themselves, but for Christ. They, they may not have two nickels run together, but they still have joy. And that's what Christ is calling us to. It's, it's fulfilling, it's satisfying, and it means something. It's beyond ourselves. And by the way, nobody that has the joy of Christ, I've never said, I've never heard any of them say, yeah, it's really been a bad deal. I really regret this thing. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it up tomorrow. I've never heard anybody say that, but you know what I have heard is people that said they've have achieved everything, they've accumulated everything and they've said, you know what? I wish I hadn't, I wish I would have invested differently. Which do you want to live? Which, which of those answers do you wanna to have to be true about your life? Fourthly, there's a lack of purpose. A, life of a lack of purpose will destroy our joy. Just going through life, paying bills, etc. Purposelessness, pur a purposeless life will erode our joy. Again, we are designed for something greater. We are designed for something outside of ourselves. And we are created for kingdom building and, and a, a purpose that Christ has given us. And all of us have a role to play. But without a life of purpose, without that being true of our lives, it's gonna erode our joy. These not, not last few seconds, let me just say these final closing thoughts. Why joy? Why pursue Christ-centered joy? Why pursue the fruit of the spirit 
and uh, I can't make you do anything. And by the way, this is sometimes I find myself going back and forth where I choose myself and then it's like, why did I do that? And I wanna return to the way of Christ. And I, I get the tension sometimes that can be there. But beyond our personal blessing, I wanna remind you that there is a world watching. There is a broken world, a dark world that honestly, Christ-centered joy, it's rare. True happiness, true joy, it's not very common. And there are, is, there are literally millions of people who long for something that we're, they long for the very thing we're talking about. And they don't experience it, they haven't experienced it. And there was some stunning research that came out and I, I confess, I don't know um, where it exactly came from. Um, I heard another pastor actually reference to it. So if you press me on it, I'll have to go back and do some more research, but this is what he said. Some research indicates that 88% of people, 88% of people come to know Christ, not because of a sermon, not because of a church service, not because of a worship song, not because of a slick kids ministry, not because of an online presence, not because of some super cool social media, not because of anything like that, but because they simply know someone who knows Jesus. 88% of people who come to know Christ, they say it's because they know someone who knows Jesus. And I already referenced this, but the joy of the Lord, the Christ-centered joy that is present in your life, people will recognize it. People will recognize it. And here's my prayer. Here's my hope for all of us, myself included. I want people who don't know God, who know me, who know us, to want to know God because they know us. Let me say that again. I want people who know us, but don't know God, to want to know God because they know us. If I had, if this would come to me sooner in the week, I'd have put it on the screen, but it only came to me yesterday. <laughs> so thirdly, third time, I want people who know us, but don't know God, to want to know God because they know us. It's my desire, it's our prayer that the people see Christ, the joy of Christ in us. And they simply say, I want what you have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, your goodness to me, to us. Lord, I pray that the joy of Christ would be evident in our lives. May it be centered on you. May we not, may we not pursue anything that's fleeting or temporary. May we not exchange what is cheap for the eternal. Lord, I pray that we would um, experience all the fullness that you have for us. And this again comes from abiding and dwelling and remaining in you. I pray that for every single person in this room, myself included, Lord, and I pray that others would see you lifted up in our lives and be drawn to you because of it. We give you all the praise and the glory that you deserve. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for your kind attention. You are dismissed. Have a great week and uh, we'll see you next Sunday.